Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Today I will be speaking with Kay Chung C, MRCP, about his article, Basic Critical Care Echocardiography by Pulmonary Fellows, Learning Trajectory and Prognostic Impact Using a Minimally Resourced Training Model, published in Critical Care Medicine last year. Dr. C works as an intensive care consultant in the Division of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine at the National University Hospital in Singapore. KC, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Todd. Uh, thanks for the invitation and the opportunity to share our work. KC, in your paper, you talk about the evolution of echocardiography in intensive care. What are the potential advantages of echo for intensive care clinicians that you see? Oh, yes. Uh, this is a very important question, Todd, and its answers are the motivating forces driving the development of echo for intensive care clinicians in my unit and probably elsewhere as well. So firstly, echocardiography, even at a basic level of competency, allows rapid uh, non-invasive assessment of hemodynamics, in particular cardiac function, microvalvular status, and fluid status. Such assessments can be done repeatedly, especially for the more clinically unstable patients. I believe that this will help intensive care clinicians manage our patients better, though the eventual impact on patient outcomes depends on echo being done in a timely fashion its results interpreted within the overall context of a patient and appropriate management being carried out. Secondly, echo can be used by intensive care clinicians as an adjunct to conventional history taking and physical examination to arrive at more accurate or complete diagnosis, especially for patients who newly present with respiratory or hemodynamic failure of unknown cause. Echo provides a gateway for us intensive care clinicians to learn further ultrasound-based skills, for example, lung scans, abdominal scans, scans for deep venous thrombosis. If these skills are applied in total, we now have some evidence, uh, if I'm not wrong, recently published in CHESS, that the need for other investigations such as complete tomography scans can be reduced. And finally, actually, this is probably one of the more important reasons for me, is that ECHO is interesting and makes working in the ICU very enjoyable. Casey, the premise of your study would seem to be that it's very difficult to train everybody according to the existing guidelines for credentialing in echocardiography. Can you explain what you mean by that? Uh, Yes. So if we look at the guidelines from cardiology, from the cardiology literature, they actually recommend more than uh, 100 scans for credentialing purposes. And I think this would be very difficult to implement, at least in our ICU. Uh, most fellows here just do not have the time or motivation to do so many scans, and most attendings, on the other hand, do not also have the time to supervise them. I think we need a more sustainable yet effective system for ensuring that fellows achieve a basic level of competency in ECHO. It seems that an expert panel agrees with your yes. suggestions, don't they? In some, uh, some guidelines published in Intensive Care Medicine in 2011 yes. where they recommended that a total of 30 studies would be required for competency in a basic ECHO format. What was your group trying to add to that recommendation? Yes, as a group, we recognise that some domains of ECHO are actually more difficult than others. For example, accurate left ventricular ejection fraction assessment requires adequate mental calibration compared to the mere recognition of uh, mitral regurgitation. Thus, we wanted to validate that 30 studies was indeed sufficient for trainees to achieve accuracy in these more difficult domains. 
as opposed to global competency alone. At the same time, we also wish to demonstrate that some of these domains were clinically significant for us to study. Well, another aspect of training that we wanted to show was that competency-based echo could be achieved using resources that could be obtained freely over the internet and that time and scheduling constraints may be potentially overcome using uh, indirect supervision. We also hope that the description of our program will encourage others facing similar barriers to start their own training programs in basic echo. Okay, so you, de- you referred then to the subdomains that you were looking at. What were the subdomains that you examined? Yes, so we looked at six subdomains in basic echo. Number one was the adequacy of all acoustic windows, which consisted of seven views derived from the parasternal, the apical four, and subcostal views. Number two was correct assessment of pericardial effusion. So it's very simple, it's whether it's present or not. Number three was correct identification of acute core pulmonale, which required the presence of right ventricular dilatation and interventricular septal straightening. Number four was correct classification of left ventricular systolic function. So it's just grading the EF from normal to mild to moderate dysfunction to severe dysfunction. Number five was correct assessment of mitral regurgitation. Finally, number six was correct assessment of the respirophasic variation of the inferior venous cava. Okay, see, all of the trainees, I understand, had used ultrasound for line insertion, so they had a a working knowledge of how ultrasound worked, but hadn't had any echocardiography training as such. What sort of instruction did the trainees get before your study? Okay, Well, my trainees actually got relatively little instruction or direct instruction from me. I basically informed them about the need to check out a freely accessible website for the build-up of the theoretical knowledge before the practical training phase. Well, to make sure that my fellows actually did their homework, I quizzed them on the various propositions, you know, such as where the apical window should be. You know, I quizzed them also on the description of cardiac structures seen uh, within each acoustic window the definition of what is acute core pulmonary, the classification of the LVEF, and, you know, how they could compute the IVC variability. Well, this informal quiz was fairly easy to do, and I think took not more than, you know, 15 to 30 minutes per training. So tell us how you went about the study. Well, there are several aspects of the study that uh, we, we actually did. Well, the first was actually to try to find what resources were available out there so uh, we really had no time or resources to create our own learning material. So we were quite fortunate to find an excellent website called criticalecho.com. Uh, well, this was hosted by the Christian Medical College in India, which actually fulfilled our need for a comprehensive yet uncomplicated overview of uh, basic echocardiography. We managed to find this after you know, several hours of Googling around and trying out various free sites over several days. Well, the great thing about having an internet resource is that trainees can revise the important material almost anytime and anywhere. Furthermore, the same resource contains short video clips, which illustrated very well the various degrees of uh, left ventricular dysfunction. So this was particularly important because trainees could also go back and recalibrate you know, their mental model of what is normal ES, what is mild to moderate dysfunction, and what is severe dysfunction. And um, this worked in the way to help us standardize some of the assessments for the patient. We actually were quite strict in our training process. 
we adhere to the standard parasthenal, epical, and subcostal views used in uh, general transthoracic echocardiography practice. You know, for example, the epical four-chamber view had to include both ventricles and both atria with the interventricular septum somewhat perpendicular to the probe. And uh, as we have mentioned, uh, we were very strict with quality control. And I think my fellows appreciated the importance of maintaining a certain standard of practice. I think one of the questions that people may ask is that, you know, how we did the direct supervision and how we performed the indirect supervision. Well, direct supervision was limited to the first five scans per fellow. I think this was mainly limited by the amount of time that we had as well, because even with five scans per fellow, that means that I could personally supervise 35 echoes for seven fellows, which admittedly was quite challenging given my tech schedule. But beyond these first five scans, I then asked my fellows to save the recorded loops in our machine. I checked the scans usually within the same day and contacted my fellows via telephone or SMS, a short messaging service, with regards to any feedback for improvement. Well, this indirect method then allowed learning to take place in a flexible yet supervised manner. And so you had seven trainees performing studies, and how many studies did the, those trainees do? The trainees did more than 300 studies. There are 343 studies actually done on 318 patients. So that was quite a lot, and uh, there was some variation between trainees. So one of them did 34, and one of them did 105, and most of them actually did around 40 plus. What were the indications for the scans being done? Were they all done as an entry into the intensive care unit, or were they used to answer clinical questions? Okay, so, well, we, for, at the start of uh, our whole training process, uh, we wanted to keep things uh, simple. So we basically wanted all our newly admitted ICU patients to at least have had a basic echo to screen for any conditions that we might not be aware of. So in this process, it was quite interesting to find that we detected some rather large uh, pericardic collections, unexpected cardiomyopathy, and other interesting findings that we did not actually report in our study, like the presence of valvular vegetation and intracardiac masses. What were the results of the study in terms of proficiency from your trainees? Well, the primary results showed that the basic training in our program was actually both feasible and fruitful, you know, even within the first year of our fellows' training. So when basic echo was carried out by echocardiography naive trainees, significant improvements in the image acquisition and also the accuracy of interpreting various uh, echo domains we achieved when uh, 30 or more scans were done. So in particular, trainees achieve uh, you know, more than 9 out of 10 acceptable views, correct IVC measurements, and diagnostic accuracy for pericardial fusion, right ventricular dilatation, and uh, mitral regurgitation. But of note, left ventricular ejection fraction assessment was a little bit more difficult, and trainees achieved about 85%, slightly less than 90% once 30 scans were done. So that, I think, was the most difficult domain to achieve. Okay, so in your conclusions, you mentioned that the diagnostic accuracy seemed to improve around 30 scans, which is consistent with those European guidelines that we referred to earlier. Do you have a yes. feel for what changes at 30 studies? Is it that people are getting better and more reliable views, or are they better understanding the diagnostic features? What, are, what do you think is influencing that result? Okay, so 
I think we uh, specifically investigated this and found that actually the, both the proportion of adequate views and the proportion of correct interpretation improved. So I think that the program has impact on both areas. Do you get a feel from your study that there's a way that that can be improved in any way? Well, yes, I think that our training program is certainly not the only one that can produce these results. I would say that a more experience would always be uh, better in terms of improving uh, skills and interpretation. And actually, if we had the finances, I would have liked to use some form of you know, high-fidelity simulation to accelerate training or you know, maybe some bank of echoes to review, especially for rarer conditions like uh, pericardial tamponade. Casey, the the way that you've structured your study with the indirect supervision does raise one question, that in retrospectively assessing the trainees' assessments, you're able to pick up errors of interpretation quite easily, but I wonder whether you may miss errors of image acquisition. Do you feel that's a reasonable comment? Well, actually, in practice, it is actually not that difficult to pick up errors in uh, image acquisition. This was because we had a fairly strict definition of what is considered adequate uh, as listed in one of our tables. And uh, furthermore, despite the brief nature of basic echocardiography, there's actually quite a lot of information redundancy. For example, the left ventricular ejection fraction estimation can be assessed on several views, the parasternal view, the epical view, and the subcostal view. So we were still able to pick up and feedback on uh, errors of image uh, acquisition. Okay, so the other question about this yes. study is the generalizability. Um, some some would contend yes. that echo is ideally yes. used with repeat scanning to detect changes over time and to answer specific yep. clinical questions, whereas yep. your study had few repeat scans and was generally done on admission. Is it likely that, that if it was used in the way that it's used in the wild that uh, the results mm-hmm. may be different? Well, it could be, it could be. I agree that we had only explored one aspect of uh, basic echo use in our study, which is to use echo in initial phase to screen for and clarify differential diagnosis on admission. I think we have also moved on, and currently our IC physicians also undertake repeated scans for monitoring individual patients according to their clinical changes and their needs. I guess one concern that many clinicians would have about echo is the reliability, isn't it? I think that's where those of us who have not gone through a formal training program are concerned about interpreting our results. Was there any signal that there were false positives or false negatives that may be misleading to clinicians in terms of changing management? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. It's a recurrent worry that we have here as well in our unit, especially with reports coming from the literature that echoes may lead to the increased ordering of investigations. I think one recent paper that comes to mind is the one on the point of care ultrasound published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine. So um, we are a little careful in this aspect. So in our unit, uh, we have noticed that we had about three or four cases of moderate pericardic fusions mistaken as pericardic tamponade, you know, leading to an urgent cardiology consult. Well, nonetheless, these resulted, you know, nearly in a few unneeded cardiology referrals. And uh, I guess in line with this, we probably will still err on the side of caution and consult our colleagues should we be unsure. I mean, we have to know where our limits lay. However, we have not noticed other significant problems and we maintain uh, vigilance with regard to over-interpretation and uh, over-investigation. You know, for example, we do not obtain uh, CT palmy angiograms just because there's right ventricle dilatation in a hypoxemic patient.
I think overall, echo must still be interpreted in the light of other information to guard ourselves against false interpretation of echo findings alone. Casey, finally, what are your recommendations for units that are echo-naive at this point for setting up a program like yours? Yes. Well, I think the first recommendation is for us to recognise the utility of echo and uh, convincing and motivating all levels in the unit, juniors and seniors, that echocardiography performed by intensive care physicians does uh, give us an added skill and added knowledge in our management of patients. Then uh, building on the, you know, all these enthusiasm, we can then get people together either through, you know, direct supervision or indirect supervision to uh, improve their skills as, you know, feedback is always very important to the training process. In addition, I would think that, you know, everybody will have varying amounts of resources. Of course, the more well-resourced units can acquire uh, slide decks or simulators to train with. But maybe the less well-resourced one shouldn't lose heart. There's a lot of free online and accessible medical education resources on the internet. And uh, some of these are really very good. We've seen images, we've still images for us, for us to, to train with. Casey, congratulations on the publication of your paper. You've certainly highlighted that implementing a system like this is possible in a unit that doesn't necessarily have uh, high-end resources. Congratulations and thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. It's my pleasure to share our work with everyone. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on family presence, evidence versus emotion? Or SCCM Pod 232 on assessing family satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at lharmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org slash projectdispatch. Todd Fraser, M.D., is an intensivist and retrieval physician based on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia. Dr. Fraser completed his undergraduate training in Melbourne before undertaking specialist training in hospitals in Geelong and Sydney. His specialist career has included time as a director of intensive care at Mackay Base Hospital in Queensland regional director of training for Care Flight Medical Services, and as a staff intensivist and flight physician. Dr. Fraser has extensive experience in critical care education, including simulation, web-based training tools, examination preparation courses, and instructional video. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.